Well, it is Mom's Day. All you moms who soldier on faithfully. You know, there are a lot of things about moms that I am grateful for. But I'm just going to say, more than just moms, there are a lot of things about women that I am just so, so grateful for. I think probably the one that stands out the most is just the... uh, the caring and nurture gene. I, I know, I know that the geneticists have not found that yet, but I'm confident that it is there. You know, the human race is, is what it is at its best moments because there are women that share in the human race. Thanks be to God. You know, can you imagine if the care of the children were left to the fathers, <laughs> human race would be smaller. Uh, it's, it's just, it's remarkable. I like to say just a few words each year uh, in, in honor of women. Not, not, all, not all the ladies are, are moms, but, but all ladies are women. Because we live in a world where I think, frankly, far too often women are not honored as they deserve. Uh, Some countries, some traditions are especially good at dishonoring women. And even in many Christian circles, the the highest honor of a woman, well, that's probably an exaggeration. In some Christian circles is probably a fairer way to say that. Women are, are honored most highly for the role that they play in the life of a man. And ladies, I just want to say to each of you that you you should be honored for, for who you are. Regardless of whether you are a wife or a mother, uh, you are to be honored and to be esteemed as an amazing image bearer of God. And it is my opinion that you are equal in worth to any man who ever walks through the door of this place. So as a community of people who follow Jesus, Applewood Community Church and, and, and all churches ought always to be a place where that is a reality. We believe that the scripture teaches that, that women are created in the image of God and, and are co-equal image bearers with men. To be sure, there are men, I choose to label them as misinformed men, who want to make a big deal of the fact that the first woman was created after the first man. That in that there is an order of priority and that the woman was created as a helper for the man. However, wise women understand that in being created second, God was simply improving on his first masterpiece (laughs) and saving the best for last. So ladies, please know that in this place, we believe that you are a first-class citizen. I hope that you experience that in every way. And as a member of the Evangelical Covenant denomination, we affirm the full gifting and calling of women in the life of the church. And in this world where, where women are devalued and objectified by so many, and always have been, we stand for the values of the kingdom of God where women are esteemed and honored, not for what they do, 
but for who they are, image bearers with equal status and worthy of honor for that very reason. So ladies, we honor you and thank you on this day. Last June, NPR aired a story about a San Diego father. He chose to be known as as Frank in the story, who believed that his son, a homeless heroin addict living on the streets in Denver, was on the verge of dying. So Frank contacted a man named Chris Connor, one of Denver's leading homeless advocates. Connor has helped parents find their lost children, but this, this was different. Connor said, I've never had a parent who necessarily went this far to what he calls descend into homelessness themselves. Connor connected Frank with Pastor Jerry Herships, whose church serves lunch to homeless people in the Denver Park area across from the state capitol on a regular basis. Frank described the moment that he met his son on the street in Denver. He says this, My son had no idea that I'm walking towards him. I can see him, but he can't stand up without the support of of a building that he's leaning next to, leaning on. He would appear drunk to most people. To his dad, though, I know from past experience, sadly, he's on heroin. Heavy, heavy heroin. I go up to him and he looks at me and he starts to turn his back on me. I don't even care. I just grab him and I squeeze him as hard as I can. And for a week, Frank became his son's shadow, wandering the streets during the day, sleeping on the banks of a river at night. He let his beard grow. He ate handout sandwiches during the day, swatted away the rats at night. Meanwhile, his son got sick. He was in and out of the hospital for a few days, stealing to buy more drugs. At one point, Frank told his son, if you die, your mom and I will die with you. We might still be here breathing, but make no mistake, if you die, we will be dead inside. And when asked why he did it, Frank said, the only thing I could think of was was just go there, be with him, and love him. Show him how much his family loves him. I thought of 1 John when I read that story. I think the Apostle John would would love that story. As As I've told you, I believe that John was absolutely taken, smitten with the love of God made known to him in the life of Jesus. You know, John was a Jew. John had grown up in a God-fearing Jewish home. John knew the history. John knew the story. John knew the words. I'm sure that he could, he could tell you the great stories. But when Jesus came on the scene, it changed everything for John. 
And those words that we have this morning on, on the screen open his first letter. And I believe they are what drove John's life. The reality of God in the flesh. God has come into our neighborhood and has wrapped himself in our flesh to show us how much he loves us. And John spent, as you know, three plus years traipsing around Palestine with Jesus, listening to him teach the kingdom of God values, watching him live them out with all kinds of people, from the religious leaders to the outcast lepers, convinced convinced John, as he saw that, that Jesus was the love of God incarnate for the salvation of lost and broken humanity. Jesus came to be with us, to love on us and to show us how much God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit love us. And after 30 plus years of teaching and discipling people, John, as he writes this letter, the amazement for God's love shown to him in Christ has only gotten stronger And he is convinced that Jesus came to bring life, transforming a sinful life into a life that is vital because God lives in that life. John is all about Jesus in every way, thoughts and words and actions. And and Matt and I had, had lunch together this week. And oh my gosh, he said something to me that I have not gotten out of my head. So profound. We're talking about the coming of Jesus and, and then living in this Pentecost season after Jesus is gone. And, and, and Matt's comment is, can you imagine how John's life changed after he took Mary, Jesus' mother, into his home? You remember in John's own gospel, he records that he and Mary are standing and observing the crucifixion. And John hears those words from Jesus on the cross. He says... Here is your mother. The instruction was implied, take her into your home and care for her as your own mother. Thanks, Matt. It's just been on my mind all week long. Imagine the stories. Imagine the experiences that John had with Mary's mother. John got to hear about Jesus from infancy to when... He met him, strolling along the seashore and calls to John and says, you, come, be my disciple. I'm going to make you a fisher of men. How that must have transformed his life and only confirmed for him the incredible love and and passion. I, I I think it was fuel for the passion that he felt for Jesus, his Savior. And so in this first letter of John that we're looking at, the the passion is dialed dialed way up. It's high. He's on the attack. He's on the attack against those who are coming into the fellowship of believers, claiming to have a relationship with God, but some historians think that it was some kind of growing form of Gnosticism. Gnostics claiming a secret knowledge from God, a secret insight, secret ways, secret revelations. And John is basically saying, no, 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 no. You can't claim secret stuff and move away from the basics. They're casting aspersions on the life of Jesus. They're downplaying the seriousness of sin. And that's just huge to John. 
Because sin is all about the importance of Jesus' death on the cross as an atonement for sin. And so John doesn't want his believers, wherever they are, receiving this letter and having it read to them or reading it for themselves, he doesn't want them falling for these lies. It denies the reason for which Jesus came to earth. If there's no sin, then why the heck did Jesus show up? Why did he go to the suffering and pain of the cross? And John says, it casts a shadow on the very character of God. It makes God a liar. Because God has made the determination that humanity is sinful. And God, in his infinite love and grace, has chosen to act on sinful humanity's behalf through the sacrifice of his son. If there's no such thing as sin, John would say, what is the point? Of Jesus. So keep that in mind because that's, that's John's passion. You know, he's just banging on this throughout the whole letter. So as we stand to read from 1 John chapter 2 this morning, John is going to throw down a gauntlet in this chapter. Uh, he is answering a question that was likely asked by believers. We often understand that letters that are written by the writers of the New Testament um, are written in response to perhaps questions that they have received. And so, as there are believers who are struggling with, with the, the influence of these people coming into their fellowship who are, who are playing down the life of Jesus, the reality of Jesus, the necessity of the cross, the truth of sin... John can imagine that these people are probably asking or he has heard them ask the question, so John, John, how do we know? How do we know who is really a believer? With whom can we have fellowship? And, and with whom do we, do we need to be cautious? Last Sunday, you remember, we, we specified that the fellowship that John talks about, it's way more than, than coffee that we might share together on a Sunday morning. It's way more than the, well, hi, how you doing? How was your week? Those things are good. Those things are a part of the life that we share. But when John talks about fellowship, he is talking about life in God together, made possible through the death and the resurrection of his son. God's adopted children sharing in the life of God, Father, Son, and Spirit. We know those verses, don't we, that are coming up in chapter 3. How great is the love the Father has shown to us that we should be called children of God. And that, says John, is what we are, explanation point, or two. Okay? It's huge that we have become children of God. He can't wrap his mind around that. What kind of love is that? That drives John. Someone has said God has no grandchildren. <laughs> I love that. Never appreciated it until I had grandchildren. <laughs> There's just something about those grandkids. Yeah, I love my kids, but those grandkids, wow! God has no grandchildren. There is no one who has a special place in the heart of God above any of his children. Whew, I love that. All are on equal ground. All 
His children are on equal ground, equally loved with all the rights and privileges that come with being a dearly loved child of God. So the question of, the question of who to fellowship with that is more than likely being asked by these early believers, it's, it's for, it's for the, the understanding and the clarification of really one of sharing life in God for the sake of, of living for God together in the world. It's, 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 a, it's a new movement. You know, Christianity is, has, only been, has only been going and growing for about 30, 35 years at this point. And, and it's living in a very hostile environment. And it's living in a place where it is difficult and challenging to be a follower of Jesus. And so folks, folks are welcoming People, oh, you, you love Jesus, you love, you love God, let's, let's fellowship together. Because they had, I think, and I've said this before, I think they had a much better, clearer understanding of the importance of fellowship, life shared together in Christ than we do. Um, life is hard for us in many ways. There's no denying that. We face difficult stuff, painful stuff, life-transforming kinds of things. But so far we have lived in a fairly friendly climate in terms of not being persecuted for our faith. Oh, you're a lover of Jesus? Bang. You know, you're a lover of Jesus? Let's, let's hang you on the cross. You're a lover of Jesus? Oh, off goes your head. Um, that was the climate in which these believers were living. And so they, they knew that they needed one another. They needed the encouragement and the support, the reminders of the truth. So you can understand how these these fellowship groups, these churches that were scattered around, uh, and, and they weren't mega churches by any stretch. Uh, they were small, they were underground, they were many of them meeting in secret for the sake of being God's people together, living out and rehearsing the truths and being reminded of that. And so, when those who don't hold to what John believes are the significant truth they begin to move in and they begin to disrupt the fellowship. They begin to, to break the, the relationships that God's people have with one another. When I introduced this series a couple Sundays back, you might remember that I said that John's theology is really not a complex theology. It's, it's not. It's, it's not a systematic like we find in, in, in Paul's theology, covering a whole gamut of topics and, and more or less in Pauline fashion, which is sometimes obtuse, tying things together and making sense of it. But for John, John, it, it, the Christian life is just ultimately a matter of being a follower of Jesus or not. That's pretty much how simple it is. And, and, it, and it's rooted in John's experience with Jesus. I really believe that. Either you are a follower of Jesus or you are not. There's, there's no sort of being a follower of Jesus. Either a person is or isn't. And in this profoundly simple way, he makes it clear for the early believers to know who he believes shares in the life of God and who does not. And so... I want you to listen for his answer this morning as we stand together and, and read some verses from chapter two. Listen closely to see if you, can, if you can hear the gauntlet that John is throwing down for who's in and who's not. Let's stand together and read, shall we? Here we go from chapter two of 1 John. My dear children, 
I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. We know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands, is a liar. And the truth is not in that person. But if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. My sisters and my brothers in Christ, this is the word of the Lord to us. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. All right. Anybody hear it? Did, did you hear the gauntlet? The kind of the, the litmus test? Just a simple little thing. Walk like Jesus. Piece of cake. <laughs> I love that, that John expresses his pastor's heart for his readers. My dear children, you know, this is the old guy speaking to the youngsters, you know, the, the, the last living original apostle. I write this to you, says John, so that you will not sin. In other words... Don't be people who make light of Jesus' sacrifice for you. Don't live as if what he did on the cross is no big deal. It is a big deal. Don't take sin casually. In fact, John says, it's such a big deal that Jesus Christ, the righteous one, speaks to the Father in our defense when we do sin. That's such an interesting wordplay there. The kind of the, the tension that it creates when we think of the community of God, you know, father and son, you know, is it, is it an image that John's creating of the father saying, oh, sin, and Jesus says, it's okay, it's covered, you know, oh, I can't stand that, Jesus says, that's what I died for, I, you know, I think we're, we're kind of tempted to, to think in that image, there may be something there but I think it's, it's more John's idea to, to try to, to put into language that we can grasp the idea of the holiness of God and his hatred of sin being satisfied by God, the only one who can take away sin's penalty. You know, John is just, as I've said, he is all in about Jesus because for John, he has experienced the presence of God and the love of God in his life personally like he had never experienced up to the point of meeting Jesus. The old English word is used in, uh, in the translation, an advocate, one who stands up for us. 
Yes, yes, they, they are weak. They easily fall into sin, but, but I've got that covered. My blood on the cross washes that away. And so here's the gauntlet. Can we put that next slide up on the screen, Rachel? If anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. Truly made complete in them. In, in, it's the idea that, that God's transforming love has done its work. They recognize who Jesus is, what he's done, and how obedience is not a have to, but a, a get to. Wow, wow. I now have been given the power to live in a new way. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. Now you knew this question was coming, right? I want you to talk with your neighbor. What does it mean to live as Jesus lived? What do you think? Well, don't look at me, look at your neighbor. Okay, Man, I, I keep waiting for that lull. There's no lull. You guys are buzzing here this morning. <clears throat> let's, um, let's talk about it together. Share with us what, what you think, what you heard from a neighbor who wants to start us off. What's it mean to live like Jesus, to walk as Jesus walked? That's such a bummer. To live with unconditional love for everyone. You do that, right? You don't have favorites. Yeah. Okay. Good, good, good. What else? To live secure in the Father's love. That is wonderful. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. It, because to not live there is to be insecure, which leads us to all kinds of things. Krista, were you going to? Oh. It sure is. Yeah, that unconditional love thing again. Yes. Yes. Yeah, that's such a good recognition is, is remembering, gosh, God is, has placed his spirit in my life so that I can, I can live as Jesus lived. I can walk as Jesus walked. Yeah, it's, it's his power. Okay, yeah, yes. Repentance and surrender, if you don't hear Dixie. Jesus model, just often surrendering to his father, turning back to his father. Zach, you want to add something? I demand it back. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Only by the power of the Holy Spirit. Sharice. Yeah, exactly. Being smitten. Yeah. Can't live like Jesus without going to the story of Jesus to see how he lived. And, and, and what, what drove Jesus? Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar. And the truth is not in that person. But if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. <clears throat> if this strikes you as a pretty black and white statement, it's because it is a pretty black and white statement. <clears throat> it, it truly, truly is. So, Rachel, can we put up our, our final slide, please? <clears throat> a few verses ahead in chapter two. And if, you, if you're reading through 1 John, you know that we've skipped a section here. We're gonna, we'll return to that next week. But I think that 
that these two, and, and a lot of commentators feel the same way, these two really link together with what we've just said and then what comes next. And those verses in there where John is talking to fathers and children and young men, it's almost like it's a, it's a, a parenthesis in, in, in the text. And we'll talk more about that next week together. So walking as Jesus walked, living as Jesus lived, John then says this, do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. John does not see the world in which we live as a neutral place. It is, in fact, for John and Paul and Peter and all of the teachings in the New Testament, it, it it is a place where there is a force that pulls the hearts of people away from God. Using John's image of, of light and dark or of truth and lies. There's no third place in John's theology. And, and this is hard teaching. There's no third place so that, so that a person could be somewhere in between the light and the dark. Somewhere in between the truth and lies. No, it's, it's either a person is in the light or they are in the darkness. Either a person is living the truth or they are living a lie. And, and John is not accommodating. And I don't like that about John. He's, he's uncomfortably intolerant. <clears throat> but remember, remember what's driving this. It's his life experience with the love of God made known to him in the flesh in Jesus. And John stood there and watched that Jesus die on the cross and ask his father to forgive those who had hung him there for the sin of the world. I've told you before, John is the one who records in his gospel the words of John the Baptist who upon seeing Jesus at the Jordan River said, look, here's the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And so it's that stuff that drives this very intolerant attitude that we hear in John's writings. There is no third place. Either you're in or you're out. You're in the dark or you're in the light. Either you're living in the truth or you're living a lie. Either a person loves Jesus and walks like Jesus or a person loves the world and that will be recognized by some of the things that we've read here. By the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and pride in a person's life. Let me give you some definitions for what these can be. Lust of the flesh. John uses a word that has to do with with cravings, human cravings. And it's describing an outlook on life that is, this will come as a surprise, oriented toward self. Oriented toward self. It's, It's an attitude which pursues its own desires in self sufficient independence from God and others as well. One commentator states that that this craving, I thought this was amazing, this craving is at the root of racism 
at sexism. It's at the root of injustice. Despising the poor and neglecting the weak and the helpless and on and on and on it goes. Things that were never found in the life of Jesus. Why? Because Jesus didn't live for himself. He lived for the glory of his Father and he lived out the mission to come and give his life for the sake of others. So, lust of the flesh has to do with making everything in my life about me. Lust of the eyes is a word that, that is sometimes in Scripture used to refer especially to, to sexual desire, but it can also mean anything that entices a person's eyes. That's fascinating to me. Basically, it's the idea of, of greed and desire for things that is aroused in us when we see them. It shines light on a spirit of discontent. A spirit in, in a person that wants something that they don't have. And that can take all kinds of forms Pride of life. Pride of life comes from a Greek word that's used only here. And in James chapter 4, you might remember the context that it's used in James where people are bragging about what they're going to do tomorrow and they're going to go here and do business. And James says, whoa, wait a minute. You're making plans apart from God. And then he asks the question of his readers. He says, so what is your life anyway? And then he answers the question. It's a mist that appears for a little while and then it vanishes. James writes that the people of God ought to speak like this. If it is the Lord's will, we will do this or that. What's implied there? That it's God's will that is always more important than our will. It is what the Father wants that is always more important than what we want. But, James says, as it is, you boast and you brag. Well, such boasting, James says, is evil. And John would agree with that. Pride of life is living as if we have something at all apart from God. My brothers and sisters, we haven't taken a breath yet today that is apart from God's sustaining power and presence in our lives. And so it's, it's just, it's inconceivable to John that those who are followers of Jesus would somehow minimize the sins of the flesh and if I could say it in in one word it is self a few more words attention to self concern for self focus on self what do these three things have in common lust of the flesh lust of the eyes and pride of life self it's about me it's about me. To walk like Jesus means that our lives are not marked by these things. People who truly know God, according to John, are people more, observed, more absorbed excuse me, with, with Jesus than self. Does that mean that, that they, that we, never have selfish moments? No. What it means is that when the Holy Spirit reminds us or calls attention to thoughts or patterns of action that are selfish, we respond with a sense of regret. 
we don't just blow it off as, oh, God understands. Well, yeah, he understands enough that Jesus hung on the cross for that sin. That's how desperate it is. That's how God understands through the death of his son. So when the Spirit reminds us of something in our life that has more to do with self than Jesus, then confession of sin is is quick and decisive. Remember John's opening words to this chapter? I write these words so that you will not sin, but if you do, you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous one. Own your sin, confess it, move on, walk like Jesus walked. So, so what's the lesson here? It's a hard one. <laughs> if John is, is, is John suggesting that, that we have nothing to do with people who don't live for Jesus? Was he suggesting that to, to his readers of this letter? I don't think so. That doesn't make any sense with the words of Jesus, his command to his followers to, to go into the world. It doesn't make any sense with the life of Jesus. But what I do think he's saying is that that we need to remember that we live in a world where sometimes the lines are blurry. Sometimes it's not necessarily clear cut. But John would say it always comes down to Jesus. It always comes down to Jesus. The dividing line between those who know God and those who do not is Jesus. Jesus said, I am the only way to the Father. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father. No one lives the life of God without coming through me, says Jesus. And so it's, it's all about Jesus. It's Jesus' focus. It's, it's obsession with Jesus. It's death to self, and it's living for Jesus. For John, it's just that simple. And here's the thing that I think is perhaps important for us or at least one of, of some things that are important for us in this is, is to remember that I don't think John is calling his readers or us to, to use this as, as a weapon against people. We're, we're, not, we're not walking around judging where people stand with God. However, I think he's giving obsession with Jesus and focus upon Jesus a, a Christocentric life, if I could put it that way, he's saying that's a litmus test for us to know who we are dealing with in conversation. Lots of people in our culture claim to be spiritual. What does that mean? I'm a spiritual person. A lot of people will tell you that they believe in God. What does that mean? people will tell you that they believe in Jesus. Well, what, what do you believe about Jesus? Well, he's a good moral teacher. He's a good example to the rest of us. Hmm. John would think that's a problem. So, what about sin? Is, is, is that a problem? It, do, do you see how these distinctives related to who Jesus is and, and his mission in the world... And what he did in, in some ways clarify and simplify for us the, the lines of knowing where 
people stand. If anything, for me, as I, as I worked through this this week, I thought, man, it just, it makes people knowing Jesus so much more urgent than I give energy to in my life. People need to know Jesus. People need to, to deal with the reality of their sin that is a part of their DNA from the moment they take their first breath. And Jesus is the solution for that. The, the answer to life apart from God. But I think maybe even, maybe even more importantly than that, which I think can be really helpful for us in engaging people in conversations, is they become a lens through which the Holy Spirit, if we open ourselves up to it, daring enough, courageous enough, begins to, to zero in on some of the places in our lives that demonstrate inconsistency with persons who claim to follow Jesus. When people observe our lives and get to know us just a bit, what do they experience? What do they hear who do they hear about in our lives? Do they get a sense pretty quickly uh, what is central to our lives? And, and, and is, that, is that the person of, of Jesus? Or is it something or someone else? Brothers and sisters, John is a hard hitter. It, it, it only gets worse. I'm, I'm, I'm just warning you, you know, buckle your seatbelts. Oh my gosh. But again, what strikes me is just, it's just so simple for John. Look, it's Jesus. It's all about Jesus. And it's Jesus that, that, that determines how we understand who we are and how we understand who, who others are. Obedience to him, um, living his life, the life that he has called us to live. So keep reading. We'll keep plowing ahead. Next Sunday, don't forget, we've got our great friends, the, uh, the Duttons that will be here with us from Thailand. Uh, precious people who love to come to Applewood when they're in Colorado. Yahoo! So they're going to come and tell us what God is doing on the other side of the world, and we'll have a chance to, uh, to hear them and share with them and have lunch with them afterwards. Karen, do we have an RSV RSP for, for lunch? No. Okay. Karen says, nah. There'll be lots of food. So <laughs> that's right, we're potlucking, so that'll help. So plan on next Sunday with the Duttons. Following Sunday, we will get back to First John together. Let's pray together. Glorious God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, there is something for me and I hope for my brothers and sisters that is just profoundly challenging in John's simple, 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 simple theology. It's all about Jesus. It's all about him making the righteousness and the love of God and the forgiveness of God made known in his life. May that become more and more important to us and perhaps maybe John's simple yet very challenging theology might begin to open our hearts to some possibilities in terms of of who we are and areas in our life that you, Holy Spirit, want to, to work on and to bring more in line with a focus and obsession with Jesus. Give us, too, we would pray, sensitivity to others and where they stand 
in relationship to Jesus and their understanding of sin and their, their, their uh, need for a Savior. So we pray as we continue to journey through your word that you will teach us and challenge us and open our hearts to truth that we need to hear for your glory and honor. Amen.